Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Dave, how are you, brother? I'm fine, thank you. Busy after my um, seven weeks in Argentina. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we'll come on to that. Um, yeah. We'll 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 come on to that, and uh, I think busy for veterans is probably a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think I most people I know tend to um, not sit around even when they retire. They tend to tend to keep going, and I think that's a pretty good philosophy to have really i don't know if it's in our genetic make makeup in some ways or perhaps you know we've got that driving determination just you know just to keep going on on whatever we choose to do really you know so yeah yes and i've worn my uh my core pattern shirt in in your honor yeah well as a choice like i like i said earlier either my ramstein tour t-shirt um which is a great passion of my music, uh, or or something more relevant to the audience. <laughs> I was going to say we've all got a few uh, core T-shirts that are probably not appropriate, <laughs> appropriate yeah, for yeah, the public. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Dave, I, I'm fascinated to chat about the Falklands. Um, I have to say, you know, they're the only podcast I really struggle to get through without getting really emotional. Um, I think they affected not just us as a nation, but anybody um, obviously that served there or that was caught up in just the massive uh, enormity of the event and the media surrounding it. And and um, I mean, I was 12 at the time, but I can I can remember driving down. I think it must have been from Southampton when when when. Um, when Canberra got in, um, we were coming back off a family holiday. And for some reason, we just almost ended up in this, like, I don't know if cortege is the right word, of, of vehicles that were just packed with service, you know, not packed with service people, but but service people and their family that had been there to pick them up. And and it was just, as a kid, you uh, we were just wait, waving at all the yeah. servicemen and they were waving back. And it was like, these are our Falklands heroes, you know? and of course, there's a, a a much much deeper, um, you know, what do we call it? Traumatic story behind it. Probably every person there that I was waving to, and the, and I know that if they're still alive, they're still dealing with it to this day. Um, uh, so, going to your story, um, how old were you when you joined the corps? I was 16 years and. Um two weeks i i remember when i was 14 seeing an advert it was an advert of a rigid raider landing on a beach with palm trees and just something clicked in my head and thought no that's what i wanted to do so subsequently i i i focused on what CSEs. i was in the mid we called it the mid range which was you were not in the CSE group, but you weren't in the O-level group. You were sort of in between, which is interesting thing to say that now, um, because I think that's where a lot of veterans live, um, in between the stereotypes 
and the heroic archetypes. I think a lot of us live in that space. I'll come on to that later. Sorry, Dave, I just so, popped us on pause then because you you froze for a bit. But yeah, keep going. Um, so, yeah, I, I saw this advert and decided that's what I want to do. I, you know, sort of gave up on education in a way. I just did the, the minimum. I, you know, I always joked that I got an O-level in geography, CSE grade one, so I could read a map in the Marines. That's always been my sort of narrative about my um, my school experience. So I joined two weeks after my uh 16th birthday in 1974. I realized very on that I didn't want to be a gravel buddy. So as soon as I got a child, I don't want to be carrying heavy weights. And there's, a, there's an irony here. Um, so I decided I quite fancied being a being a signaler. So I went on to do an R race course, went out to Malta, my first draft for one, and then ironically was wandering around carrying all the kit plus an A41. So you know that plan didn't work. Um, I didn't spend much time sat in the back of an FFR, which is what I sort of fantasized over, you know, about sitting there smiling at all the grabs with the, all the kit they were carrying. Um, from there, I went, I went on to HQ and SIGs, the sort of, um, as we used to say, the worst draft for a signaler, because you seem to spend all your time painting wagons. And then from there, I went on the mail team when the mail team was a proper mail team where there was very very few of us at Yeovilton before Chosk because pre-Chosk days and um, I think there was probably five or six Marines a couple of sergeants kind of sergeant PW band obviously so we it was probably one of my best drafts um, because the senior age treated you with a certain amount of uh, um, respect being a booty and the other ranks were slightly nervous of you because they couldn't make you out and actually actually one of my best drafts it really was a good draft mm -hmm. and in the meantime um the corporate air crew for the sea king started to come through um i can't remember all of them i remember chris petricatus who who died in an abseiling exercise uh accident and one of my great friends um doc love who was killed in a helicopter crash in the falklands war and I'd known Doc all the way through my time in HQ and Six. Uh, we were, and actually, I didn't realise till 25 years later. I sort of blocked that out in a way. Um, we were just great friends. We went to see Led Zeppelin together. We went to see the Who. You know, Boston on their first UK tour. He was a great status quo fan. So we went to see status quo together, and we're there like groupies trying to get backstage. You know. All those things that you you know you do in your twenties, plus the runs of shop at Union Street. You know, I've got some great pictures of us absolutely hammered on Union Street, lying on the floor. Um, you know, so you, you you do what you do in your twenties while you're in the core, don't you? Ever you have a gang of mates who you, you go on the lash with, um, you chase girls, you know, and you you know, in our case, we would listen to rock music. We used to do all the local gigs um, around Plymouth, the Chapel. Uh, I can't remember all of them, but there was there was a the Swan, obviously the Plume and Feathers on a Sunday. You know, we used to do you know, and that that's what we used to do. So anyway, when he came up to HQ, uh, up to Yelverton as an air crew, we reconnected. You know, and spent two years, you know, going on the lash, making a nuisance of ourselves. Um, you know, playing out the stereotype of being a booty in a naval establishment, you know, I mean, the amount of times I was on Bloom and Captain's table and got away with it, you know, because my my DO uh, was 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 it was pretty good. He was pretty good with me, you know. 
and then in the I got married in the um uh in 1980 to Suzanne, my first wife, and um, then moved back when I got promoted to corporal back to Antwerp. I thought, oh my goodness, yeah, great. In November of 81. And then from the November of 81, um, I took over from someone called Doc Turnbull as Julian Thompson's corporal Sigma. The winter, we, as always, we went to Norway. Um, and then we returned on the Thursday which was probably something like 30th of March. I'll be corrected if I'm wrong, but I am old now. So, and then turned to on the 1st of April, on the Friday, and then spent the weekend preparing to, to go down south. You know, the usual pack the Land Rovers, get in on the Saturday, unpack the Land Rovers, take, pack the BVs, you know, move your equipment across to another BV, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was just endless. And I can remember going home once during that weekend to see uh, Suzanne, my first wife, um, and my parents and my in-laws at the time uh, for a few hours. And I think that, if I recall, that's probably the, um, the most time I spent at home that weekend. We then, um, some of us went, down south on a proper ship you know we didn't swan around on some cruise liner like a lot of people i know did you know i went down on fearless um so we boarded fearless on the monday evening um someone told me a bit recently that i had to be dragged out of a pub on the monday night a few of us decided to go for a wet which we weren't meant to you know usual stuff got dragged out told to get back on board which you know making the most of it you know because you you three cans a night from from the tuesday onwards you know so and then then we sailed on the tuesday i can't remember much about most of my 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 focus narrative has been filled in by the people you know i mean i i i and i've come to the my reflections i do a lot of reflection i've always written in journals i've got about 14 of all stuff that goes on in my head which i tend to write down i, I found it a good way of me reading it and then reflecting on and trying to i'm a bit of a navel gazer to be honest you know i'm always questioning for want of a better expression you know what's my part in all of this you know what, what you know i'm i'm what's called an existentialist and and i when i work with veterans the way i work is i i i, I tend to work on this philosophy that you, you can't change the past but what you can do is you can find ways to accept it and whatever veterans I'm seeing and families, I, I sort of try and concentrate on that first. And I don't work with, you know, sometimes I won't talk about Afghanistan with the veterans. I'll talk about how that has an impact on them today. And I think that's really important. Um, and then we look at ways in which we can make the future more positive. So I sort of have adopted that in, in most of what I well in all of what I do to be honest but I, I it's taken me a long time to come to that point where I'm really comfortable with that you know it's come it's come from therapy it's come from spending time and combat stress which again I can come on to later um but anyway I went, went down south for Central Islands we're sailing and my my first memory of the Falklands and one that stayed with me is I was on the mess deck um a couple of days before we landed and I a friend Bronco Lane, who was part of the 19 late 70s HGN6 pissing up crew, came down and told me that he had some wanted to speak to me up on the deck. Um, so I went up on the deck with him and we lent on the 
we lent on the, you know, the, the rail there. And, and he said, oh, Doc, Doc Love's died. And, you know, it, it was difficult in a way because what I decided to do psychologically, and I know this now, as I sort of shrugged my shoulders and blocked it out, really, I think it's probably the, probably the, what I, how I was able, because I think there's a lots of things going on. You know, you, you, you know, there's no turning back, you know, you've got a job to do, you know, you want to come out the other end, you know? So, so I went down to mess deck, told the mess deck, um, you know, differing responses, you know, you know, typical bravado from the people that didn't know him and non bravado from the people that knew him. So, and then we landed, uh, you know, San Carlos, which is well documented. I don't, I don't talk much about what happened down south. You know, I have specific memories. Um, you know, and I think a lot of my memories were were uh, came back to me when I went back down there on the 25th anniversary, which again I can come on to later because uh, it's a big part of my journey. Um, so, and then I, uh, what happened is that the Brigade HQ uh, took a near miss. So I remember them digging it in deeper. Um, and then it was decided that the, 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 they needed the TAC HQ to go out and the TAC HQ was made up of two BBs. So we left uh, San Carlos and we went to Teal Inlet where we forward of the brigade. From there, we then, as my friends with TAC HQ have told me, were plonked, um, on the mountains, various mountains through the period of the rest of the war. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't have any contact with Brigade HQ for the whole duration of the war. But we were actually out on a limb. Um, you know, we we were shelled, moving in the dark. We were bombed a couple of times. Um, and a lot of that I, I really can't remember uh specifically, to be to be honest. Um I just focused on the job I had to do. And with a small TAC HQ unit, you know, you were doing the events and you were doing the radio watches and you were making sure everyone was fed, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was pretty brutal in a sense, but we were lucky. We had a BV, we weren't cold, we weren't wet, you know, and, uh, you know, we weren't as short as food, you know, the things that, 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 the grabs went through, you know, I mean, but that was my job in, in reflection. It's a job I choose to do, you know, and we all had a part to play. I know that now. Um, so, and then when we went down to Brigade HQ for the first time is when Brigade HQ was bombed by, I can't remember, it was three or five aircraft. Um, and then we, 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 we bogged out again. We, we you know, crash moved it to attack HQ. You know, and the reason we were out there is if the Brigade got blown up, they still had command and control over the over the units in front. And then from there, we we moved towards Stanley, to get closer to Stanley. And the night before the war ended, we ended up in a in a in a minefield. Uh, one of the vehicles, the Royal Artillery vehicle hit a mine. Um, both the guys were were, were fine. The, the uh, 29 CO had a uh, damage to his back. Inch, the signaler was like in shock um again another memory i remember him walking out walking towards me sticking his head in the window of the bb and saying hello jacko we just hit a mine you know like it wasn't obvious that's <laughs> a vehicle in front of you on its side um so that was a, a a memory in a sense is that we we then 
went into automatic pilot in relation to how we dealt with it. Um, the people on, you know, all the passengers, inverted commas, they, they walked out the minefield and I was the first vehicle in the line of three, I think it was, um, to come out of the minefield. The way, I, well, the way I dealt with that is I convinced myself during that evening that it wasn't a minefield. It was a stray mind and they were unlucky. And I think in a way, as I reflect on that, that enabled me to, to, to not have a complete and utter meltdown. <laughs> for a better expression and i can remember all the guys when they were all back on the track looking back at me smiling and laughing you know i'm black humor i mean goodness sake you know and me you know flicking the v's to him you know and that's how you cope you know that's how you cope so anyway on stanley war ended so you know and i've been filled in with a lot of stuff um my colleagues i was with steve pope uh, when we've chatted over beer you know when we get together um but, you know, when it finished, for me, it finished. And, you know, I had a career in the Marines to think about, you know. So, so that really was my sort of um, my my position on it, really. That's how I that's how I thought, right, move on, get home, you know, pick up my life. Um, I came back on Fearless. Um, I arrived back in Stonehouse the day after Canberra. And... You know, I think this is a bigger part of my Falcon story, to be honest. And it's, I think it's, it's, it, it, in a way, enabled me to 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 deal with my subsequent, you know, mental health disabilities, abilities, to be honest. Um, so I came back, and my in-laws were there, but my wife hadn't come down to meet me, um, which was a bit of a shock, to be putting it bluntly. My brothers had come down, so, and when I when I went back to Launceston, where I lived. Um, you know, I asked her why she hadn't come down and she said she she couldn't cope, you know, she couldn't cope with it. And I re respected that. So then there was a period of time where things weren't actually right and um, not right at all, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I just sent on six weeks leave, you know, no, you know, no therapy, no, um, what do they call it? The thing that they do in Cyprus. I can't remember what they do. You know. Oh, like de deflation or decompression. decompression I think they yeah. Yeah, no decompression. Sent on leave six weeks, you know, summer leave, Easter leave, and a week for your troubles. I think it was like. So um, and you know, things weren't right. Um, and she knew Doc Love very well. So so she was saying that, you know, she she, she can't come to terms with Doc um being killed and of course you know you, you accept that you know you accept that and gave her a lot of time to get her shit together so and Don, then, um dave just for our friends at home so, yeah of course um it it was michael love wasn't it, it was this yeah nick nicknamed doc yeah um and was his his aircraft was brought down by a bird strike yeah, bird strike with all the assassin. Oh my God! How how many SAS were on board? I think there was twenty two. I mean, it was a seeking. I think there was a lot, and a lot of them died. Um, I can't remember. You know, I don't. You know, I mean, I don't do the facts and figures. It's not my fucking bag. bird, though. Jesus Christ, a fucking bird. Oh, mm. they there you go. Yeah. Um. So eventually, I. I caught Suzanne out basically, you know, she said she was going to be somewhere. I needed the car. By that time I was well into partying and, and basically 
drinking my way through life, to be perfectly blunt. Um, and, um, you know, she wasn't where she want, said she was going to be. And then I, I went round to the parents of a friend and they said they hadn't seen her for weeks. And then I went round to where she was playing squash with a friend and told her to get home, we need to talk. And then she just said that she, she met this friend and he was someone from work and la 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 and all the rest of it. And I said, well, you know, I asked her blunt. And whether she'd been um, shagging him. She said, no, no, no. And I said, well, I need to meet him. Because my logic then, I'd had enough, to be honest. My logic then was, well, if he has, he's not going to want to meet me. That was my logic. So at that point, everything everything in my life about the Falklands just disappeared. You know, I, 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 had, I had bigger fish to fry. I had bigger things to sort out in my life, you know. I mean, so um, I... In True Bootneck style, I it was November. It was November the 3rd. It's funny how you remember. I can't remember the bombs and that, but I can remember dates like that. Isn't it, isn't it funny? And I said, I'll meet him, uh, Bolvental, Jamaica Inn, which was about, you know, 15, 20 minutes from where I lived, 8 o'clock. That was it. So my logic was, like, you know, that if he was up to no good, he wouldn't um, actually wouldn't actually meet me. So I had a few beers, turned up at Borvento, sat in a crowded pub. Um, I went in first. And the first thing he said to me was, oh, I, I've been waiting. I wanted to make sure you haven't brought, brought any mates along. Yeah. And I just said to him, well, why would I bring mates? Why would I bring mates along? Why? So I said to him, well, you know, he's been shagging my wife. Straight out, you know, very loud actually in the pub because I, you know, I, had a, I, I thought, no, you, you know, I'm not going to do this quietly. And um, he said, well, no, 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 no. We've been for walks. I supported her. I know you lost your friend. la de la de la And I said, well, I'll ask you again, you know, have you been having an affair with my wife? And he said, no. Now, this guy was overweight, bold, and 24 years older than me. He's married, had three kids. So I said, you're married? You know, because I asked all the questions. Married, got children? Right. So I was trying to build a picture which which actually would not, you know, support my gut feeling, I suppose, for want of a better expression. So that was on the Tuesday. Then on then the Friday, we had the um, the free drinking session, courtesy of Plymouth, you know, the victory parade and the pubs were open and you got lashed up the hill. So I went on the lash with a view that I would, um, you know, stay in Stonehouse or blah, 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 wherever, wherever I fell. And then I just had this feeling about seven o'clock that evening that I needed to go home. And I, for the life of me, I don't know why, you know, I was out with my mates and I just, I'm going home. So, you know, as you did when you were foolish and I got in my car, drove from Plymouth to, to Tregadillet near Launceston where I lived. And I got to the app, the bungalow we lived in and I couldn't get in. The key would not open the door. So it was obviously on a deadlock on the other side. And then Suzanne come out, clearly throwing on, her clothes for getting to put her bra on and then just the penny drop. So I just walked through the house, saw this, the, the guy going out the, the window of the spare bedroom. We live in a cul-de-sac. So I knew that to go around to, to get to his car, which I assumed was in the pub, he'd have to go around the house. So I just backed up and went through out the front door. He couldn't run very fast to be perfectly blunt. So I chased him up the road and, um, you know, he said, you know, do you want to fight over her? And I 
I said something, something's a melodramatic. I just wanted you two to be honest and clearly a pair of lying twats. I just wanted to know the truth. And uh, he put his fish down, so I butted him um, and then dragged him back to the house. And I did drag him. And then I made a point of shouting to all the neighbours who knew what was going on. See this man, you know, you bunch of twats. I was, I was pretty angry to people. Everyone. And I, you know, I sat them both down and said, right, you know, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you um ever you know i don't care you sell insurance and wants to ever see you i'll kill you and i said to suzanne get out i'm going to go and bring your parents they're going to come pick you up and i want to see you again so so that was that became my my you know that sort of put a, put a buffer between me and and subsequent issues i've i've had over the years you know up to when i left so you know and then i went on did uh 21 years after that I, you know i i enjoyed i enjoyed it you know some of it's pretty boring isn't it you know you do exercise and you think what the hell's the point you know i mean i think post falklands there was a lot of um people who wanted to make a name for themselves um who didn't go down south um certainly perhaps staff officers that might have sat behind a desk driving a desk during the war i felt there was a lot of that going on which was understandable Anyway, I I I I then um, made colour sergeant. I tore my cartilage. Simply, I went to have my cartilage looked at to see if I was P two again, uh, with a view that I'd do my first straight states trip with forty, which I was really looking forward to. And the consultant said, "You know, where do you work?" I said, "Norton Manor." He says, "Well, you don't really want to drive up there this afternoon for a couple of hours." I said, "No, not really, sir." And he said, "Got any other problems?" <clears throat> and by chance, I just said, look, I've had problems with my hips. I've got this pain in my hip and I've not, never had it before. He said, look, go and get some x-ray done. I'm going to go to lunch, come back, wherever, we'll, we'll, we'll do a whole check. So he did my knees, my back, uh, and both my hips. And I came back into the the, the, the room and he said, um, I'm sorry, colours, you know, you're out. I mean, not obviously, not as blunt as that, but he said, you're out. You've got arthritis in both your hips. He, he, you know, my left was was uh, poor. My right was just riddled, riddled with arthritis. My wife Sharon's a physio, so I remember going back home and she said, "Oh, you 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 off in September then?" I said, "No, I'm getting kicked out." She says, "You're joking." And she had, you know, she had a treatment room at home. She put me on the bench and had a look at me left hip. She said, "Well, that's not too bad," you know. And she looked at my right and she said to me, I'll never forget, she said, you got a hip of an 80-year-old. You know, so I then had a medical discharge in reflection, the best way to get out, you know, because you do get your, your, your pension in relation to the time that you've done. This, the injuries have to be attributable. Clearly from age 16, the warm wings knackered my body. Um, I was found at that time to have um, arthritis in the spine, um, lower lower back, that explained a lot of my back issues, um, and both my knees were short. I'd already had an anterior cruciate replacement. Um, so, you know, and I went outside and I was told to get on with it. So basically after that, I, I, I decided I didn't want to go into another uniform. I, I wanted to do something really diverse. So I, I, I trained as a psychotherapist. And I worked as a psychotherapist uh, within further education um, 
in schools in Cornwall with messed up youngsters, you know, and that was my treasure and career. And to be honest, I was, I was good at it. Yeah, I was good at it. So that really is, is for me, is my, is my fucking story. You know, there's no, you know, it's just like what happens. Um, you know, and I wouldn't change any of that. I wouldn't change what happened to me and Suzanne. She obviously didn't love me enough, did she? You know, at the end of the day, you know, and I, I, I married Sharon. I've been married to Sharon for a long, long time. We've got two lovely girls. We've got grandchildren, you know. So, you know, what men agree, was it? You know, that's not how my life was mapped out. Dave, would you change living in Launceston? No, no. Goodness me, no. Because I, what, what, I lived in Tregadelic, which is, you know, towards Bodmin Moor, a few miles outside of Launceston. So when we got divorced, you know, I, I had this big fat lump of money. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to live it. I, you know, once you've been an outlier, you don't want to be an inlier again as a corporal living in a box and stands pouch. There's no way. So I was able to buy a house for, for 12 grand in Launceston in 1983, 12 grand. And then from that, I did it up, sold it, bought the next one for, for um, 26. And then we had the boom and we also had the interest rate hike. We had the boom. So I was able then to buy, to sell that for 88 um and keep some land separate as a as a, as a safety net um and i and i and we bought in launston for you know 105 grand you know that was back in the 80s and you know huge house um, there, there's a lesson there for young marines isn't there i i bought my first box in crown hill mm. um well between crown hill and west park bought it for i think 40 which was a lot as yeah. a, that was the ex- you know that was a lot of money back in the day that was like the limit of what you could borrow yeah sold it for i don't know what was it, 160 um moved in with my dream girl and now we've got a pla- i'm not going to say it's it's a palace but we don't care it's ours and, and exactly. it, we, we, we got a garden and we got a garage and i tinker in the garage with my boy and we play foot we've got a football we made a football pitch in the back garden and uh it, it it's to all you youngsters out there in the forces, don't piss it all away. Just get down that, get down the bloody building society, get lie about you more. I, I told him that when I went to Norway, I earned all this extra money. Well, I mean, we did. Right. But you know, you got to like, let, even though, even though the draft I was in, we didn't go to Norway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, they, they're looking to, you know, you're a safe bet as a service person. So. Yeah, of course. Of course. So it's uh, yeah, that's a lesson there for all of us. Yeah. And I mean, I, I told, I, I hang on to that place in Salt Ash. We, we were in this blooming huge five bedroom, five reception room at Victorian house, me and Sharon, when the girls left and went to university and then went to lead their own lives. And we were sat in there banging off the walls. So we bought a barn out near Callington, middle of nowhere. And we've been here about 11 years now. But in the meantime, the market was really flat. So I, I, I just um, rented the house out at a lovely family. And so, so, and I sold that two years ago, you know, because the market, because everyone wanted to live in the Southwest. So it was just mm. a good time to sell. Um, spent 18 months getting it to up to some sellable standard um you know where it would make the most money basically without spending lots on it and um you know i've lived in a barn conversion it's got a couple of acres first thing i did was convert uh which is what i'm in now convert a, a workshop and a and a 
tail off into a and basically another property on the property, which I could do within planning, because as long as you don't have a kitchen and a shower, you can call it an amenity space. You know, what's a kitchen? Well, it, it, it's a two ring burner and a, and a microwave. I mean, we've lived in this space for the last five years. So I did that and then um, decided in my wisdom six years ago to gut the barn. So I totally gutted the barn and I built an extension on the barn um, and redone the barn. It had a lot of um, uh, damp problems in relation to a lot of the render had gone. So water was coming through because it's block. It, it's, you know, there's no... <clears throat> Uh, so, so I, I, and we moved back in, in, in at Christmas. Um, but I do most of it myself. I, the skill work, like plastering, I won't try. I can put electrics in, but I always get a bootneck company to come and check it over and, and make sure it's all okay. You know, I, 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 you know, I've done most of it, and and you know, reap the benefit of buying this place at three hundred. We paid for it, but I, I won't tell you what it's worth now. But. I wouldn't, I'm going to get carried out from a box here. I love it. You know, look, you know, Good. I have, I have, found you, you found your shang, Shangri-La, mate. And that's... yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, I wouldn't live anywhere else, anywhere else, you know. So, um, Dave, I'm just going to like chip in here, mate. And uh, 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 look, I've never done a podcast with someone that's been at war, whether that be the Falklands or, and it hasn't cost them dearly in terms of mental health. Um, and that's, you know, possibly glossing over the fact of all of our buddies that have killed themselves or drunk themselves to death. And, and, and so just a simple like question, and I'm not trying to be uh, frivolous or whatever the word is, but like, w w what's the fucking point of war? What, what why do we keep going to them? Well, if, ev I mean if everybody that goes to them gets fucked and comes back and either, you know, spends their life in trauma, um, I don't know. Uh, it, it, well, I mean, if you if you if you look at the human species as an animal, you know there, there are. I think you know, a long time since I taught. I used to teach psychology. Um, the human as an animal has certain traits that are given. I can't remember them all, but one of them is territoriality, which means that that, that you know, and to, to gain territory and resource for resources, it's always been the case. Mm. Always been the case. So war is something that happens in in the human and if you look at war really it's been about territory and resources over the last hundred well since time and eternity i mean the way i you know i mean the way i see 1982 now you know older wiser and spent a lot of time thinking about it is that you know we were thrown together by the politics of of that moment in history in argentina and you know in great britain I'm not saying that what we did was any way was not just. You only have to go back to the Falklands to to have the people say thank you, even the people who weren't around that time to thank you for for the life they've got, and and that is incredibly moving and powerful. You know, if you've got any doubts, you know, and I've never had any doubts, but you know, young men went to fight as they always do, and as they're doing in Russia and, and Ukraine, young men went to fight for 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 politicians and the decisions they make. And you know, Ukraine about territory, you know. I mean, what what was what was um <clears throat> Iraq about? You know, it, it certainly was about oil. Um, 
And, you know, to a degree, the Falklands is about oil because of the resources and about fishing and about, and about you know, most of the squid in the world that comes from the South Atlantic, you know. So let's not, let's not be naive about it. You know, there was subtext to, to the war, but fundamentally what we did was the right thing. I think the problem at the moment, you know, politically is that and having spent a lot of time in Argentina with the play, I mean, you know, what gets spouted out is, is 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 only two narratives, and it is the 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 narrative of you know Argentinians' accusation of colonialism and and the empire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, and Great Britain's response, and what what I always say, and I've done a lot of press over the years in Argentina, to say, well, you seem to forget the the the, the third party in this, and that's the Falkland Islanders. The people, yeah, of course, people on the islands, you know, and. and you know, and the, the, what I say to him is, let's imagine that your your area of, of of Buenos Aires, I came along and said, I want to take over this area. I, I want to take over your schools. I want to. How would you feel about that? Because that's what you are suggesting that we do, without acknowledging that narrative. And that's as far as I go when I talk about sovereignty. You know, and and you know, I don't. Um... I've got to be careful what I say here because we fucking come under attack for fuck's sake. Um, but well, I'm just going to say it. You know, they they're still teaching this in their schools like it's a yeah, mega I, mega I, mega thing. You know, yeah. But I I it'd be different if if half the islanders were Argentinian. Yeah, okay, fair one. But it's this uh, historical island that no one really can lay massive claim to well because it's a rock in the middle of the sea um but well, it just I, I i i mean the thing is is that you know when this podcast goes out there will be a lot of interest in argentina because of the play etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm not trying to to to, to censor this in any way but the the the, the bottom line is for me, and this is my personal view, and I again I do speak a lot about this, is that Argentina, the the, the Malvinas, the Falklands, as they call it, was historically was used um by Peron as a way of galvanizing um the nation. Mm. And they lay claim geographically, but if you if you know the history of their claims to the islands, it's completely different to our history. You look on Wikipedia in Spanish about Malvinas and English, you, you will see that it's completely at odds. And 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 but it is used as a as a way of, of of getting support as a political narrative, a political tool. And we're not going to change that. I think, you know, I've been into about 20 schools while I'm with the play and I'm I go to schools off my own back with, with people from the cast or uh friends i've got over there and we 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 give them all i give them an alternative perspective on it all you know and that's what i do you know it's incredibly powerful and it's like to be honest when you, you know i went to a school 500 the whole school out and afterwards you're like you know you're signing autographs and you're you're having pictures of all the young people because they've never heard anything like it um most people in argentina in my experience um are too busy getting on with their lives to have too much of a concern unless it suddenly is explicitly brought up politically during elections, et cetera. You do have a hardcore 
who you you'll see them on Twitter, you'll see them on on Facebook, you know, and and basically talking nonsense. And I I will I will say that they're talking nonsense, you know, with facts to back it up. The Malvinas for me is for me having been there, you know, a lot. You know, I've been over there five times now, and I think about this a lot. And I think it's like a it's in their soul, right? And it is part of the identity. And that's not the war. That's this idea, in a way, fantasy, because, you know, let's not forget that Gavtieri really messed up because during the 1980 and 81, there were talks between Argentina and Britain about how the islands would be shared with a long-term Hong Kong-style handover, et cetera, et cetera. So he really, really did mess up, didn't he? I mean, come on. We wouldn't be having this conversation now if he hadn't made a big faux pas, idiot. Dave, can I just say Hong Kong's really misunderstood. Um, the the agreement that was signed, the um, Sino Anglo agreement back in the day, it was only for the Northern Territories. It was never for the island. No, no. It was our fucking wimp fucking government. Excuse my French folks, but it's really screwed things up over there for everyone, right? It was our wimp government that just gave the whole lot back. There was never a deal for the island. The no. island was always British. They yeah. just gave gave it. I mean, you know, I'm being a bit, I use the word frivolous again here, but I mean, I lived in, you know, I lived in Hong Kong for a year and I, I get it. You know, I used to have a Hong, Hong Kongers say to me, ah, next year we'll be rid of you British. And I used to say, oh, what, you want your fucking yeah, street exactly. signs in Chinese, dear? You want your grandma to have to start learning to speak Mandarin? Really? And and they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, I'm taking a pic. You, you, you know, it, it is a really very clever culture in, 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 in Hong Kong off, off the back of um, British colonialism. And I'm not defending it all around the world, but it, no. it, it certainly became just an incredible, incredible, unique place. And of course, now... You know, if you think we've had it bad this last couple of years, um, uh, they've had it, <laughs> you know, they've had it like even, even worse and, and, and they will get it worse. And you can't protest in Hong Kong. You just get dragged off and you disappear. And um, but, but I suppose I, I think for me, in relation to the Falklands is, is you're not going to change the part of the Malvinas story, the part of the Malvinas narrative, which is actually part of what makes them Argentina. Mm. You can only do what you can do. So going into schools, going to universities, challenging some of the academics, which I've done in university, I said, well, actually, no, that's not actually correct. You know, and I do it in a, in a respectful way, you know, but it's only what they've been told and, and the way in some ways, you know, you know, if we were able to have, someone from China here, the, the, the narrative of Hong Kong would be completely different to the narrative that you've just, you've just expressed. Mm. So, and we can't change any of that. But I think for me, in relation to what I attempt to do through the press, through TV, radio, when I'm in Argentina, is try and give an alternative perspective. And dare I say, it works, you know. Um, in... what is, Dave, can you sum up the crux of what that perspective is? Because as we know, in, 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 in Argentinian schools, they're just taught that it's their island. We stole it. We're the invaders. We're the occupiers. What would you say to Argentinian children? 
what would I say in a school? I mean, I I I talk about um, I I I talk about because they are the future. This is I talk about them being the future of tenure. So so if you're thinking of invaded again, and I'm I am putting it in not the terms I would use. Obviously, invaded again. I want you to, the very simple exercise. I want you to close. Your, I want you to look at the person next to you who's your best friend. This is what I do, and I, and I get them. I said, I want you to look into their eyes, stare at each other, and I have to be quite assertive. I want you to close your eyes now, yeah, and then look to the front. Open your eyes. Your best mate is gone, completely disappeared, dead. You're never going to see that person again. You're never going to experience being young with that person again. And I say that's what war does. That's what war does. Is that what you want for your future? We need to find another way. I I talk about the Falkland Islands a lot. I talk about you know understanding that that you know people's perspective of history is different. I don't talk about sovereignty. If they, if anyone asks me, you get asked some really 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 challenging questions. I say, well, you know, we have a difference of opinion, and it's not about it's about respecting. You know, most Argentinians I've met, and I've met hundreds of veterans respect my position on sovereignty and I respect theirs. I, I don't think you can do any more because, because it, is, it is part of, unfortunately, what makes them what they are. I mean, I think in a way, in relation to the schools, well, that, that, that's, you know, we have no control over that. But I think the opposite, opposite can be said about in relation to how we teach history in our schools. Mm. You know what we should be doing with young people is giving well, them. Good we don't. Let, let's be clear, Dave. We don't teach history. We we indoctrinate them with the fucking bullshit that keeps the status quo. Um, well, I, I suppose. But the thing is, it's it's, and we can't change these systems in place. You know, and I think what for me is important is, is you know, for me the history of war doesn't doesn't end when the 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 fighting stops and that that what we ignore. Is okay if you're going to send young men to war. You you need to be looking at the historical narrative of what happens to young men who become old men within society. You know, going back to a, a point earlier, is that you know, to me, and this is from working as a psychologist and the research I've done over the years, is that war has an impact on you. It's actually how the degree. Now, you know, to me. It's not as simple as 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 you know. Let's fact, you let, the bottom line is you you don't have PTSD unless you're diagnosed. But I know lots of people out there who you know I think mm, you know you 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 you've got all the signs of PTSD, but but they they haven't got it unless they have a diagnosis for, from a medical professional. The medical model we need to you know give you a diagnosis, otherwise it don't exist. But the bottom line is is you know, war impacts on people to a larger and lesser degree. And there's so many factors which will determine how they integrate, accept, deal with those experiences. And, and you know, the medical model for me is too simplistic in relation to, and also, what then? What then? You get a diagnosis, what then? You know, that's the question. And if you look at recommendations for therapy within within nice which is the national guidelines you know ptsd i'm not so sure i read it for a couple of years would not recommend in sending veterans to see me because i don't work within their perceived framework which is nonsense because i work in a different way then and they have they had a warning that you know it could be they didn't say dangerous 
you know, but they, they were saying, don't, you know, send the people who use stuff like Dave Jackson. And they don't obviously say Dave Jackson, but you know what I'm saying? Mm. And and that's where it all, I think that's where it, it fails veterans because it doesn't, doesn't look at us as individuals. It looked as, looks looks at us as, as objects, um, not as, you know, with an objective experience. So, you know, A, B, C, D, E, you got PTSD. A, B, C, no, you haven't. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and let, the, let, let, can we come on to that? Sorry to interrupt you, mate, but, yeah, I, you know, this is, I've done the last, I think, five years in my life has been raising money for veterans uh, in various, you know, charity stunts. Um, I studied to master's degree level in the, in the social sciences. So, uh, I'm a qualified youth and um, all my degrees in youth and community work. I'm passionate about young people. Um, I went on to study social work and uh, combine like live, work and travel in 75 countries across all seven continents, plus being in combat when I was 19 years old. It Like I have quite a unique view on this. I, I, I think, and I'd love to, you know, I, I think we need to get get this out there because I, I, I feel that you're probably um, seeing life or PTSD the way, certainly the way that, that I do. And if we're not, at least we can meet in the middle and, and hopefully get something good. Um, what I just wanted to say before we leave the Argentinian thing is uh, I when I recovered from chronic addiction, I wanted to teach street kids in Mozambique is a bit of a bizarre thing, but you know, my, my calling was like these kids that were living on the streets over there. And, and I, there was an opportunity to go and to do so. I had to study for six months in Norway, a, a kind of like they, they, they have unofficial universities in Norway. They call them folk high schools. So I went over there and I'm studying with like 70 lovely people from all around the world my best mate become argentinian yeah diego right and i always used to think fuck me if we was just six years younger yeah, yeah we'd have been course. down there in the falklands and i've been trying to kill you and yet you're my best mate it's mm. just just insane dave hold hold that hold let's hold this moment a sec yes sorry dave i was just um, right. telling you my my experience with my Argentinian mate, wasn't I? Yeah. Um, Diego, just, uh, just, just such reality, isn't it? Of um, killing people that really you'd be mates with in a pub. Um, yeah, and I, I think the thing is, is that, you know, I've never, ever, well, one, I had one incident, which was unfortunate, where uh, the daughter of somebody lost his life gave me a bad time. But if you think over the last six years, I've been over there getting for 12 to 14 months I've spent in, in BA. Everyone else are just, you know, I, you know, I'm like part of the furniture over there. You know, they all they all take the mickey and say, you know, when are you moving over here? You know, I go to people's houses for, for Sunday lunch. It, it's like, you know, I'm, you know, with certainly with many veterans i i'm i've never felt anything but but a, a, a great deal of mutual respect and love and i think when you meet a argentinian veteran for the first time in relation to to having seen the play afterwards 
all they want from you is, is an acknowledgement that they did their best. It doesn't matter whether they were conscript, whether matter whether they're regulars, they just want that acknowledgement from another veteran that you respect them and they did their best. You know, and and that to me is is you know it doesn't matter what the politicians say, it doesn't matter, you know, all the saber rattling. I I I I have no control over that. But you know, I've never had a, a situation where I felt you know un, uncomfortable. I've had Argentinian veterans crying in my arms after the play. You know, that is more powerful and more important than than some politician gobbing off. To be perfectly honest, because you know, and and if you look at uh, meeting the enemy. I mean, it's been going on for hundreds of years, you know, and thousands of years where uh, past combatants would meet, you know, and it happened after the First World War in the 1930s. So it's nothing new, you know, um, in relation to, to, dare I say, the more traditional uh, combat sort of situation. Um, I think when we, when we talk about, you know, other areas which are not so... Um, clearly defined yeah um there might be more difficulty you know with, with um veterans meeting current enemy if if you understand what i'm saying i know and i fully understand that you know and i wouldn't want to meet anyone from the taliban to be perfectly honest you know so but i think in more traditional uh whatever traditional is of course there is a long history of meeting meeting that's combatant so okay. I, I don't i don't you know the politics can you know i have no control over that so so i don't engage with it because I, I sometimes think it's a waste of energy you need to be looking at what you can do in a positive way have you, you know. have you read two sides of hell by vincent bramley no i haven't oh my gosh he really i think he interviewed six uh argent argentinian veterans and the the story that comes out is just beyond belief what they went through yeah i mean some of them were having to abscond from their mountains in the nighttime because they were up there freezing, starving. Their officers were back in Stanley eating all the, you know, eating all the good rations. And they were having to sneak back to Stanley in the nighttime to go through the rubbish bins to survive because they were, you know, they were starving up there. Not that's, that's the beauty of the play. What Minefield does, it doesn't, it's not, you know, the, 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 the play Minefield, I mean, for, for people listening to this, the Minefield's been going on for six years now. We've done 190 shows. None of us are actors. We're basically three Argentinian veterans and three British veterans who fought 40 years ago. Simple. And what we do is we tell our story before, during and after the war. So basically, um, and we are good. We're not actors. We're just very, very good storytellers. And, and, and But we obviously do everything to help the other person's story. So we will be bit part actors in another person's story and it uses multimedia music, uh, film from the past. We film each other on stage and it's projected onto a big screen. I dress up as Thatcher, then get my kit off to the sound of Don't You Want Me Baby. So it's got everything in it. And actually the first part of the play is really funny because the lines that you say are actually quite funny, but you don't realize until you're in front of an audience. And the stories from the Argentinian side, which they tell to their people and around the world are shocking. And they they cover the same things like lack of food, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, from that perspective, it, it, it you know, Minefield does a very good job at you know, telling the truth. We don't hold back in relation to 
um, how war impacts on us. And I think the play for me is not about the war. It's actually about what war does to young men and when they become old men. <clears throat> I talk about, you know, some of my mental health difficulties and Marcelo, who is also diagnosed with PTSD from an Argentine perspective, talks about his. And we do this in a psychology scene where I'm his, I'm his um, psychologist and he is my client. But then that scene gets turned around. He becomes my pseudo psychologist by asking questions about my experience. It's very, very clever. Um, so, yeah, I think in relation to, you know, you can only do what you do, you know, and I think I, I, I use that in most aspects of my life. You know, a lot of things I have no control over. That doesn't mean I can't challenge them. And certainly within my academic work, um, you know, challenging the current research, popular culture and medicalization of veteran narrative, you know, it, it, they, to be fair, they, they do produce the same stuff, but in a different form, but it doesn't actually in my opinion, make a material difference to, to veterans and families' lives as they go on, you know, through life. And that's my passion. I'm lucky enough to get paid to do that at the moment, but it, that sort of work doesn't stop when I finish a contract with a university. I, I still do it, you know, for my soul, so to speak. What's the name of the play, Dave? Did you mention it? Yeah, the play's called Minefield. Campo Manado in Spanish, you know, there's a lot of stuff on um, on the web, you know, uh, press reports. There's on Lola Arias, that's uh, Lola, A-R-I-A-S, on her website. There's a short uh, eight-minute introduction to the play, you know, just gives you a snapshot of what the play offers. Um, there is a studio version we recorded of the last song. The last song, um, it's called The War Song. Very, very challenging lyrics um, done in a great rock style. There's a copy of that on my on my YouTube channel, um, which I can obviously send the le- links once we've done this. People are interested in listening to the last song. I mean, what the play does, you know, very simply, like any good story, it takes the audience by the hand and, and guides them through your life story. But the difference is, is when we come to do the last song, which is, have you ever been to war? Is one of the lyrics in it. You know, have you ever seen a man on fire? You know, would you, would you send your sons and daughters to war? Would you, would you, would you? You know, it's a really angry, punky song. It's great to play. I get to do a really good improvised guitar solo in the middle of that. And, and, it's very clever because what that does is then separates us from the audience very, very harshly by saying, you don't know what it's like, you know, and um, very, very, very clever. I mean, we've done 190 shows. We've been around the world and we're very, very lucky to be involved in that. I'm very proud of what we've achieved as non-actors. Um, we we, we uh, did 20 shows in Argentina we did the first uh, seven shows, then it, up to the April the 2nd, which is their remembrance. So that was a huge show for the Argentines, you know. And then um, they put the tickets on sale for the rest of the shows and they were sold out within three hours. You know, we're, we're playing to 1,200 people over there, which is which actors would give the right arm for, you know. But it's not why we do it, you know. The, the, it's about the importance of the story and the importance of, seeing reconciliation in front of you and challenging a lot of 
you know, a lot of stereotypical stuff about, you know, war, war veterans. We're just blokes. We're just blokes who fought against each other. And we're the best of friends now, you know. Dave, it's, it's obviously a, a memorable time for a lot of people, the 40th anniversary. Um, what, what, what can we say here for people that might be struggling with this? What, what, what's, what's our message to them? Well, I, I, I mean, for me, you, I don't like to tell people what to do. I mean, I, I, I'm quite harsh in a way in relation to pe people who've got clearly problems is because the first thing you need to do is take some responsibility for your own mental health. And I know that's hard. I know that's hard. But you need to, and, and that's a risk. So when veterans come and see me as a psychologist, that's a risk for them. And the risk is that they have a fear of being judged by me because I'm a bootneck and they might be army and they might be bootneck. You know, I've got a couple of bootnecks I'm seeing at the moment. Yeah. Now one, sorry, one bootneck and one army. Yeah. Both from Afghanistan. Yeah. So in some ways there's a risk in exposing that you're struggling to another bootneck. Let's look at it from a bootneck to bootneck perspective, mm. because there is a fear of being judged. There's a fear of not being heard, but you have to take that risk. And I know that's tough for lots of people. I know that's tough for lots of people, but it starts there for me. You know, it, it starts in, in, and then look at, you know, and, and I mean, it's, it's, has it changed much? I don't, I don't see, um, it changed much for my Falklands generation to 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 the younger generation and asking for help. I I don't see a lot of difference in, you know, the fact that I see a broad brush selection of people from Northern Ireland right through to Afghanistan. You know, and I I'm, I'm I don't advertise. I I you know a lot of my work is word of mouth, which I prefer. You know, but it always is. And I get and if we... I had if I had ten pound for every person who said to me, my mate needs help i i wouldn't be driving around 300 quid's worth of old banger would i i'd be you know but it is first you know it is about taking that risk you know finding some resources to take that risk and reaching out to someone who is recommended by another person and that doesn't necessarily have to be a veteran psychologist stroke mentor stroke oppo stroke whatever you want to call it it, it can be a civilian who, who 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 knows their stuff you know my best therapist I, mean, I was diagnosed in 95 PTSD, depression, anxiety, social isolation disorder, you know, and I've had my struggles. But the best therapist I saw was a 70-year-old wise, wise, wise old lady. She was amazing. And she put me on the road to trying to accept that, you know, my nightmares, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one of the main reasons I, I thought I was being, didn't deserve any help, I suppose, for one of the expressionists, because I was, I, I wasn't a gravel buddy. I wasn't a gravel buddy. Why, 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 why should I be asking for help? Why should I be making, you know, making such a fuss, you know? But it was for me accepting that I have sleepless nights. I, I do get incredibly emotional at times. I, I, you know, and the other thing is I never grieved the loss of my friend, you know, until I went back down to Falklands and had to symbolically say goodbye to him on the edge of St. Carlos water before I could move on with that, you know? And then I acknowledged the fact what a great friend he was. And that makes me sad, you know? I mean, it still makes me sad, you know? You're a young man. And I'm, I'm, I'm alive now, I'm, I'm, I'm doing things which he can't do. But that goes for anyone who loses a life in, in, in war. Do, do, do you think he's bothered about that though, Dave? 
I'm sorry to be so blunt, but it it what would he want for you? It, it, would he not? Well, want I, you? I know it. I know. I I mean, I don't think it's about him being bothered because if you you you, you know, depending on your religious persuasion, for me. What's important is what what I do here, not what happens afterwards. You know, I have no control of that because I'll be dead and I'll be dead and I won't know I'm dead because I'm dead because my brain's not working. Really, really simple. You know, what happens after that is just, you know, is whatever, is what I do now. So I don't think you can judge, you know, and no disrespect to, you know, people of a spiritual persuasion. I I can't judge what he would think now because he can't. He can't. But what matters is how his friends who knew him see what I might do in his name or what I might do in, in you know, in other veterans' names who've lost their lives, you know, young men. I mean, to me, that's what's important. And that means, which I haven't done yet as an example, I'm going to the memorial service at, at RNS Yeovilton. You know, I wasn't there in the Falklands War, but I felt that I I I wanted to go because, mm. you know, it's in his memory as meant, uh, uh, you know, and the other people who died in the Falklands War. You know, and I'm writing a piece about being a 20, 20 year old mate. I'm not writing about his military, you know, for 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 inclusion on that day. You know, and I haven't read it yet because it'd be quite hard to write. But his brother's going to be there. I've never met his brother. Peter, I'm going to meet Doc's brother for the first time in 40 years. So what's important is, you know, not how Peter sees me, but what I do in, in, in you know, remembering Doc as a, as a great friend, you know, and, and Doc has no say in that, you know, unless you think he's in heaven. You're, you know, I, just, I just want to make the point that you're, you're doing what he would have wanted you to do, mate, is get on, live your life. Of course. Do good for people when you're clearly doing that, you know. And I, you know, I, I, I you know, and, and I, I mean, I did a master's and, I, and I, I wrote about how's my journey from Royal Marine to council enabled me to ultimately accept my experience of war. And there was no answers to that, but it was an autobiographical reflection on where I was at that moment in time in my life in 2000. And then I paid to do a doctorate because... You know, very simply, I, I was sat on a train coming back from Norwich on my on my masters. And I, I used to, I just write a lot, you know, and I wrote, actually, no, no one in society asked me as a veteran, brackets, veterans family, what they what we want from society. It's all reactive, and it still is. It's reactive, it's reactive, it's not building the foundations of something that's really, really proactive in relation to supporting veterans. You know, and I'm not talking about the mad, bad and sad. And I think that they are they are supported as best as possible. I'm not saying it's it's good or bad or indifferent. I, I and I'm not on about, you know, the heroic archetype that gets pushed out time and time again. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the people who sit in the middle who do OK. But sometimes at some point in their life, the deck of cards comes falling down mm. and they won't be diagnosed. But, you know, and that's about. For me, you know, based on the research I've done, that's about, you know, transition and, and a lack of preparation for the nuances of civilian street. We are culturally different to, to, um, to civilians, you know, full stop, end of story. I can, I can give you a lecture on culture and frame any culture and then I could, you know, around the world, then I could put veteran in it and families 
and we will be the same as coming from a different culture. So where and, we are. And, and, and bootneck veteran is different again. Of course. And then within that, you have your subcultures, you know, I mean, um, so I did a, I did a doctorate because I needed a voice and I feel that veterans need a voice um, challenging the status quo. So when I did my doctorate, I did a film about going back to the Falklands on the 25th anniversary, autobiographical, very, very honest, very, very, didn't hold back everything I felt. I even noted down, spoke into a camera or spoke in a dictaphone, threw it all together. And then I had to obviously do the academic bit, which argue in why it's important and it's knowledge. And it's never been done before. Um, it was hard. Was it therapeutic? To a degree, but by that time, I I I was coming to terms with some of the nuances of of having a mental health disability. Um, during that time, I had a huge. I had a my deck of cards came tumbling down for an employment issue where I was stereotyped by Cornwall County Council. I know now, so they could get rid of me to save money. And when I'm in it, I didn't realise that I was. I did a brilliant job in a school, you know. Um, no, I did, because in my employment tribunal, I had letters from parents saying without Dave, mm. you know, little Johnny wouldn't have made it past into college or into the Navy, you know, but it didn't count for anything, you know, and that I, you know, I I, I did have a breakdown. I, I looking back, I, I didn't have a breakdown then because I wouldn't admit I was in a breakdown. I ended up in combat stress, um, did the week's assessment. They told me that I have to wait months. I thought I can't wait months to get my you know, get myself sorted out. And from there, I found a good therapist again and, you know, reflected on it. I had to go through a process of being pretty depressed, uh, not working, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, through that, I, I, I needed to find some focus in my life. My focus has been in getting my doctorate, which is the green berry of my mind, and then, then working on projects which I see make a material difference to veterans and actually challenge current thinking within the academic world. Um, there's not, you know, I can spout facts and figures here, you know, as an example, there's 20,000 plus papers written about PTSD and treatment. If you equate that to the economics of doing research, that's a lot of money. There's, there's, there's a handful about families. So, you know, if you look at uh, popular culture, we are framed either mad, bad and sad. We ain't, we ain't framed in a, in a, in a film like being Mr. Normal trying to do the best, or Mrs. Normal trying to do the best they can despite their experiences. And that's that's where the stories are for me. You know, people who go outside do really, really well. But sometimes, you know, when the when the, the pack of cards comes tumbling down, when they may be redundant, when there might be relationship problems, you know, that's when we need individualized support for veterans and and you know, I mean, so that's my sort of journey. You know, I mean, I, I, it took me seven years to get my first job. I was banging on doors, but I just stood on my soapbox at, at conferences. I challenged the status quo. I was a, excuse <coughs> me, I was, at, I was advisor for Lord, Lord Ashcroft's report. You know, that was by just sitting down with them and saying, this is what's wrong. <laughs> this is what's wrong, you know, and them actually listening and being included. A lot of my stuff was included in 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 Lord Ashcroft's report that he did on veterans. Um, 
you know, and just banging on doors and speaking at conferences, you know, all at my cost and knowing that one day I would get, I would meet someone and uh, who I work with now. She's absolutely fantastic, you know, um, and getting on projects, which, which I feel make a difference. I mean, I've worked on two, one was called the military afterlife project, um, where I simply went in and said to veterans, male, female, RAF, booty, army, navy, tell me about your life in Sewer Street. That was my research question. And we've got the most amazing data. We, we, we've now got themes which are common across these 50 people. That was done on the shoestring. I was working a day and a half a week. And we've, <clears throat> we've got over half a million words of narrative on a shoestring budget. So it can be done. It can be done but it's very difficult to get funding and it's very difficult. And the project I'm on at the moment is very simply looking at free charity, small charities, turn to starboard, veterans and communities, which is um, in Altrincham up north, um, and Waterloo Uncovered, and, and just looking at them, putting them on the microscope and looking at uh, the veterans experience, which is through an interviewing process, um, getting the veterans within the charities to represent the charity and their experiences of the charity within a film to do a case study, you know, to say this is your health check to the charities. And then from that, um, a, char uh, uh, a couple of um, official papers, one for government and one for um, the charity sector, with a view that, you know, I mean, we all know that, you know, a veterans charity set up by a veteran, run by veterans, with a lot of veterans, not all veterans, a lot of veterans working in, there's a connection straight away. I mean, that's not rocket science, but it's getting down to the nitty gritty. What is it about these charities that, that work so well? You know, you know, so I'm involved in that because I, it's, it's a huge project in relation to the potential outcomes from that. So that's what I do. And that's what I will continue to do. My, my wife's retired just as when you retire. And I said, I'm not, you know, if I'm working it's like a busman's holiday, you know, so that's, I can't remember what the original question was, but that's sort of what I focus on now. Um, and I will, um, sorry, I'm um, I'm just concerned with veterans out there that might be in a bad way. Well, I suppose it, but but you can I tell you a little story, Dave? I, I, yeah, I, it, I'm not telling you, although I am telling you. I ju I just want it for for our friends out there that, um, and I hope this helps. When we was in Northern Ireland, I remember I was on the gate at a camp one day, right? I was on the bottom gate, opening the gate. I think it was Simo, rest in peace, that was manning the, the Sanger above. And the patrol going out, split into two parts. One, one part went out the top gate, so I let them out. The other patrol went out the bottom gate. And within minutes, all you could hear was just gunfire just down the street. <laughs> I remember looking at Simon going, oh, fuck, right? And that's when we lost Adam Gilbert, um, rest in peace. And I, I learned a big lesson from that because there was a corporal, a very experienced corporal with, with Lima Company. I won't say his name because he might not want to be mentioned on a podcast, but if I say a name H, I think people will know um, who I'm talking about. He got shot in the Falklands also. And H was trying to save Gilly's life. And 
he just looked up and went index right the point i'm getting to dave is like i if i'd got in like involved in all of that fuck me i don't think i'd be here <laughs> right i don't think i'd be here i i i i always think what would they have wanted they and they'd be like chris dickhead fuck off and live your life all right i can do that <laughs> that 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 i can do right the past for me the past is is about how that impinges on today yeah yeah we're obviously with the heightened i mean anniversaries to me are a bit of a nonsense you know because you there's not a year goes past but you where you, you you're not thinking in some especially this time of year about the problems i mean so you know and i always say the 40th anniversary is for other people not for me because I think about the Falcons on 39th, 38th, 16th, you know, do you know what I mean? So, so, and I think what happens is there's a heightened, heightened um, stuff in the media. Then next year there won't be anything because, and then we have the normal stories that come out about veterans, which are generally about homelessness, alcohol, you know, the usual stuff. It comes out every year, you know, it's like a, you could set your blooming calendar by it, you know, and they're not bringing out anything new in relation to, stuff but i think the question always for me is how is in past impinging on today so if the past impinges in any way on today how, how does how, how does that impact on me moving forward and living a positive life and for me that's always the starting point in the work i do whether that's informally whether that's over a chat with a mate of a beer it's how how and so how are we going to change that how are we get how we're going to accept that little part which is which has the potential to drag you down or is dragging you down and you can't move forward because like you say life is about moving forward so and like i said i think i think if you are if you are going to regurgitate your story to to as a civilian therapist there's a huge risk there there's a huge risk there's lots of stuff around not understanding not understand me i've heard it thousands of times from veterans who say i went to see this person you know and they didn't have a clue what i was on about so i walked out i've heard that hundreds of times so it is about finding the right person but but it but, but, and whilst it's a risk i think sometimes you need to stand in front of a mirror and i mean actually do this and say to yourself in the mirror how much value do i place on myself because these people might place value on their family they probably place more value on their dog but they need to stand in front of a mirror and say how much value do I place on myself? How, how am I worth taking the risk of going to see someone, whoever that someone is? And that's really tough. But for me, that's always a starting place is, you know, because if they're saying they're not worth it by not at least engaging, I mean, when I work with people, it's never, I'm going to see you for six sessions, come along for chat. I might not be the right person for you. Let's see where we go with this, you know. Um, and I never say therapy. I never, you know, I will decide in a moment what's best for them. I mean, I've been out on Dartmoor with, with, and sat on top of a tour with Flask and some signings and chatted. Now, professionally, is that therapy? Well, it may not be in, in the stereotypical view of a, of a, you know, a leather couch and a couple of leather chairs. No, of course not. But did that support and help that veteran in that moment in his life? Of course it bloody did. We, I mean, we were, you know, as long as you didn't take him to Launceston, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, 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 you know, in, 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 it's never as simple as, 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 you know, perhaps 
is made out and the narrative that's portrayed in relation to, you know, you know, come and use op courage, pitch up, you'll you'll see someone who's skilled in in working with veterans within the NHS. It's not as simple as that. Hmm. It's it's just not, you know, they they make it sound so simple that, you know, if it was as simple as that, all veterans would 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 have a blip, engage with someone for therapy and walk away and be smiling and happy and move on in life. So it's no, no, life's not life's not simple. For anyone who's had a traumatic experience or, you know, whether that's childhood sexual abuse, rape, you know, even a car crash, it's not as simple as that. Mm. And it's made into this, 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 this um, process, you know, and for me, you know, one, one size do not, does not fit all, you know, and that's the other thing that's, that's sadly missing from interventions within the medical model uh, in supporting veterans and families, you know, and then the, the the you know, I always say that you know we are lab rats to be probed and poked by by academics and the medical profession, you know, and it is changing. I'm probably being really unfair, but for me, I've always felt well, you know, one size does not fit all. You know, um, you've got to ask yourself: Can you find something in your life which helps you therapeutically? Um, you know, whether that's exercise, whether that's drawing, whether that's writing, whether it's focusing, you know, you know, finding something more creative to, to engage with life, you know. Um, and lots of people do it, you know. Lots of people do it, you know. Um, but the question I would, I would, you know, if people are struggling, you need to look in the mirror and say, you know. And actually, the other question they need to ask themselves is, is what, would I, what would I suggest to my mate, my best mate? to do in a situation I'm in. What would I say to him? And repeat it. I, I mean, I'm not saying, this is not something I'm using as an example. I'm actually saying people, people need to really, really look at themselves in the mirror and say, well, look, you know, what would I say to my best oppo in the Navy, the Army, the Marines, the RAF, if they were telling me the situation I'm in? And then you need to say, you need this is a, a, a something you do. I would say to them, you really need to find someone who's going to help you out on this. Then ask yourself the question. So how come I'm not doing it for self? Am I less worthy than my friend? Do I think less of myself than I do my best oppo? Because my best oppo would, would, would be really annoyed with me if I'm thinking less of myself than I am on my oppo. It's really, really, you know, that sounds really simple. But let's face it, there are other complex things that are going on you know these things in my opinion you know when people do struggle do not happen in isolation you know they do not happen it's not just something that happens generally there's stuff bubbling underneath if you 99 well a large proportion of us when we go outside do okay despite experiences and like i've just said earlier it's generally something else that brings the whole pack of cards tumbling down and underneath you'll see, you know, something that's happened earlier in your life. Yes. And you can, you can extend that back to childhood as well for some people, you know, you know, you, you know, there's no doubt that that, that can be bubbling under, you know, um, poor upbringing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I always say it's not as, it's not as simplistic as it's made out to be. If it was, we wouldn't have the need for op courage and op courage would be would 
not be working because 99 you know 100 of us would be doing okay and there wouldn't be you know the issues that arise you know um but i i'm a great believer in you know you've got to find that resource within yourself that resilience to actually ask i know it's hard you know yeah it's really easy to be glib in a podcast and say you know that that, that i i get it i, I everyone goes through their own mill i mean there's so many things that have helped me for, for a start forgive your fucking parents whatever they did to you or whatever they've you you got to forgive that you got to think what was life like for them and you're probably going to find they had the same shit that they put on you and they were struggling and um you know it's like when i look at my little boy dave i'm not seeing a little boy or an in uh, i'm seeing me in another body mm -hmm. and that is a check for me with my behavior at times you know like that is that is just you chris like when you was a little boy you know fucking treating with some respect and and but it goes the other way it goes back up the chain because very often we find that we've harbored a grudge against someone because they did this to us and did it and yeah it, yeah it's not nice no one's going to say it's nice but when you trace their chain back then you go oh my god they had that done to ah they's a struggling individual was right and and it, it, it it's not about that hurting people is ever accepted or anything it's about you've got to move on so somehow you've got you've got to get to grips with it you've got to deal with it put it behind you you know we did a podcast the other day uh falklands veteran came back killed himself and then it came out that you know he, he, i'm not gonna go, i won't go into the details again but he had horrible things done to him in his childhood mm. and the falklands had triggered all that off well, exactly what i was you know? saying you know i mean I, I i i think that that you know does happen and, and um you know I find more it's something that happens in the here and now, you know, it could be redundancy, it could be relationship problems, it could be, you know, as you know, I've had situations where, you know, um, some uh, army corporal was killed in Iraq, and this just didn't even know the guy. But the symbolism of loss, the symbolism of uh, and it just triggered all the stuff that this this army vet I saw hadn't hadn't dealt with, you know. Mm -hmm. And that loss went back to the fact that he was close to his granddad and he lost his granddad. And it's about, you know, and it's not wallowing in those things. It's about saying, well, how's that impacting you today? Well, it's impacted you know, because you just feel this great sense of loss. So have you ever ever acknowledged acknowledged in some way, you know, your granddad's part in your life and the positive things? And he hadn't. He'd never never grieve the loss of his granddad so the first thing we did is we found a way in which he could grieve the loss and then 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 move on you know so so it isn't it isn't you know simple and anyone who says it is is filling in a cbt form you know and then filling another one six weeks later i'm sorry it, it, you know if life was that simple you know there won't be a need for there won't be a need for the you know amount of charities around there but that's another narrative isn't it you know Dave, on that note, I'd love to chat with you longer, but if we go on for too long, people will go, oh, hang on, I've got three hours to spend of my day watching no, these two. But what, just on a final note to all our veterans out there, you know, 
you were taught to be in a team, right? A team is when you're struggling, you reach out to your buddies and you get fucking help, right? We ain't got time for lone wolves. You there trying to be a hero and deal with it all yourself. That's nonsense. You reach out to your mates. There's plenty of us out there. We've many of us have been 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 for it. You're you're not the first person. Uh, you won't be the last. You got wonderful people like Dave here and all all the work that that he's doing. You're not going to be judged. You're only going to be judged when you know you're going to end up taking your own bloody life or something. And everyone goes, "Oh my God, what what?" And and it's awful. And and you know we've just had that happen in in the Royal Marines family. And I'm still fucking reeling from it because it was like the nicest guy one of my biggest, biggest supporters of everything that I, I do. And, uh, you know, despite my, uh, uh, clinical outlook on life, I fucking shed a few tears for that one. I'll tell you that, but, you know, reach out. We're a team. That's it. You know, you're not a lone wolf. Dave, same goes for you. You know, um, if anything comes back over this pod, you, you get in touch with me and we'll, we'll deal with it. My phone is open to my mates 24-7. I don't care if you call me at 2 in the morning. In fact, I wish some people had done. Um, you know, don't don't keep it to yourself, fellas and fellasses. Um, you know, that's why we're a family. Dave, we're going to put all your links below, mate. So if you can send me, like, in a nice little paragraph what, what, what we can put below that can help people and what can promote what, what you're doing um to all our argentinian friends out there hasta luego and uh mucho suerte to uh, to to all of you anyway thank you very much for the time that's great you're welcome royal yeah let's chat again soon yeah all the best cheers <laughs> friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.